Hey there, Dragonfly Nation. As many of you know, my friend Chris Gilmore and I have been developing an online course and community revolving around the world of hunting. If you are new to hunting or have just started your journey into this broad field of food getting, you may feel a little bit overwhelmed by some of the barriers you may experience. Where to hunt, how to get started, how to find your targeted species, and so many more questions often arise among new hunters. On this online worldwide course, we will help guide and mentor you through your journey to become a better hunter, both through greater success, but also through becoming a better steward of the ecosystems you hunt within. Chris and I are both really excited to begin this journey with you and are happy to offer you, my dear podcast listener, a little incentive to join this amazing opportunity. Just go to www.thehuntersjourney.com and use promo code DFNATION100 today and save $100 off the course fee. As well, for our Patreon members, there's a $200 discount that you can access right now. Just go to the Canadian Bushcraft Patreon and you'll have access to the promotional code there. We can't wait to see you soon on your hunter's journey. To know the landscape is to open up a door To feel deeper connected than you've ever felt before We know that you will love this podcast so shut your mouth and listen to canadian bushcraft hey there dragonfly nation this is the canadian bushcraft podcast with your host caleb musgrave i know i know we've missed a couple of weeks it's been a very very busy month finishing two birch bark canoe builds uh repairing a wigwam uh, for an indigenous community near us, as well as traveling all over the place, getting as much work done as we can before the big move for the homestead, for the quarter acre homestead. So I do apologize. We've we've kind of lapsed in our episodes. I want to apologize for that, and I want to make it up to you by having a uh, moderately deep philosophical discussion. Why do we do this? Why do we go out and make camping difficult for ourselves? (laughs) In a lot of ways, that's what bushcraft is. You talk to a lot of through hikers, you talk to a lot of backpackers, you talk to a lot of people that go camping. They're like, man, this is like camping, but harder. Why do we do this? Why why would anyone choose to build a lean-to in the most inhospitable locations for a shelter? Why would we do that to ourselves when we could have just took a tent or a hammock and set up an easy camp and just went with it? Why do we have to make all of our own stuff in the woods? Why do we have to, instead of carrying it in, like why do we carve spoons instead of just bringing a metal spoon? Why do we learn how to make baskets to carry our gear instead of using a backpack? Why do we use all of these old ways why do we use all these clunky, heavy-duty things? I've been reading a lot of, uh, recently, Horace Keppert and, of course, George Washington Sears, a.k.a. Nesmuk, but also Colonel Townsend Whalen and the ever-controversial Bradford Angier. And it's come to my mind, like, come to my attention from reading them again and again. I've read these books, like, On Your Own in the Wilderness by uh, Colonel Townsend Whalen and Bradford Angier. I've been reading that book since I was 15 years old. And I I still read it at least once a year, if not twice or three times a year. And I'll read Nesmuk's book, Woodcraft and Camping, and Horace Keffert's book, Camping and Woodcraft. 
two, three times a year. Like it's, it's, these are some of my favorite reads, um, from the perspective of the old timers. And when you read what they're considering as high tech and ultra light, and you realize, wow, that stuff is bulky and heavy at, by today's standards, it becomes a question like, why do we carry on those traditions? Why do we use canvas tents? Why don't we use nylon tents for wintertime? There's a lot of really good nylon tents on the market these days that are designed for hot, uh, hot tenting with wood stoves. Why do we still use canvas tents? Why do we still use cedar strip canvas canoes when many other, like in this case, in my situation, birch bark canoes, when there is Kevlar, carbon fiber, used to be Royal X as well out there, all these modern materials that can make the canoe lighter in theory and more durable in theory. Why do we do this to ourselves? Why is this what we do? Why do we do bushcraft? A couple of months back, actually several months back now, we did a Patreon podcast episode. And on there, Nikki Satira, one of our co-hosts, one of my co-hosts, mentioned like how camping can be miserable. And it's true. Camping can be miserable. And often the bushcraft community is the one that makes their lives in many ways miserable because we go into the most remote areas with the least amount of equipment of anybody. Sometimes the most amount of equipment, depending on who the people are and what their definition of bushcraft is. But we're the ones that do everything tough. And what are the reasons behind that? Why do we do this? It's a good question, I think. It helps kind of remind us what what our passion is about this. And it helps us kind of put into perspective what we're doing and what the reasons are. And I think that's important to do once in a while. Sometimes you can feel kind of burned out. Sometimes you can get kind of frustrated with this stuff. And you've got to put it into perspective. You've got to think about it. And so there's a lot of reasons people do these things. For some people, it's the challenge. You know, they, they truly believe that the most exciting, exhilarating thing is to have the most challenging experience camping. So instead of taking a tent, they'll take a tarp or they'll take no shelter of any kind and they'll construct a shelter in the field. They won't bring any rope with them and they'll use spruce roots or they'll use basswood bark to tie everything together. They'll carry little to no cooking equipment and they'll have to use the fire and rocks and things like that to make their meals. And they find that exhilarating. They find that is exciting. It's their own version of like a roller coaster ride. And they come back with these kind of embrace the suck kind of attitudes of like, yeah, it was the most terrible experience, but man, I'm going to talk about it for years. And that's a completely valid reason. That's a completely valid. Is it my reasons? Eh, maybe to a degree. Um, challenging myself is in a different way. I challenge myself for other reasons, but not for the challenge in and of itself. That's never been really my interest. I was never into competitive sports or anything like that too much. And that's because it never really grabbed my attention. That's not intriguing to me. What's intriguing to me is the, oh, we'll get into my reasons in a bit. Other people, the reason they do it is because they're trying to pack lighter. They want to carry as little as possible. Remember that famous, famous mantra or credo in a sense of Morse Kohansky's. The more you know, the less you carry. 
for every pound on your back, there's a natural bushcraft solution to cut down the weight. Instead of taking that heavy tent, you can just take a tarp. And if you don't want the tarp, you can build a shelter. Instead of carrying all the kinds of tools you would need to do in the woods, everything, you can carry a select few. And if you want to know what more about that, look at the episode, one of our most recent episodes, the tools of the trade episode, where we talked about, where I talked about the four tool philosophy of carrying an ax, a crooked knife, a straight knife, or AKA a belt knife, and an awl. And how that can accomplish 95% of everything you ever need to do in the woods. And there's so many other reasons to the, it's, it's the idea of carrying less on your back. And so you can enjoy the view more. It's a very, it's a, it's an interesting philosophy that's very much in line with ultralight backpacking, though they rarely have the same objectives. They rarely have the same goals. An ultralight backpacker, they often want to carry less so they can travel further. Whereas someone who's a bushcrafter wants to carry less so they can do more outside with less gear on their back. And both of them may enjoy the fact that they can stop on the trail and enjoy seeing a deer or a moose or an elk or a bear, whatever it may be, because they were actually able to look around and see everything around them instead of, you know, trudging along, focusing on the next step forward because they're carrying like 80 pounds of gear. They're carrying 20, 30 pounds, maybe less. I think the, from what I remember, the objective of ultralight backpacking is less than 10 pounds, which is something that I haven't got to yet. Uh, we talked about that before. I've gotten to about 23 is my best weight, 23 pounds. And that's because I like carrying my axe. Ultralight backpackers don't take axes. I like to have an axe with me when I'm in the Canadian woods. If I was in the jungle, probably a machete instead. But anyways, it comes down to the, the reasons and the beauty of carrying less is, again, you can see all those beautiful vistas that you always see on, you know, social, like Insta, Instagram and everything else like that, where everything looks just stunning and gorgeous. And you can get a chance to see those views when you're not trudging along carrying an 80 pound ruck and suffering the whole way and having to focus on your steps so that you don't twist an ankle or break a kneecap or something it's it really is beautiful in that philosophy that's a really good reason to carry less and practice bushcraft is to have that ability for other people it's self-reliance they want to be able to depend on themselves, not the gear. And I'm not knocking that one either. I'm making jokes with the term, the, the, the phrases, because it's kind of overplayed. Um, the term self-reliance to me, I find very, and this is again, not, I'm trying, I'm not trying to down, downplay or not downplay. I'm not trying to discredit or insult or disparage anybody that says those things or has the philosophy of self-reliance from my perspective. You're not self-reliant when you practice bushcraft. You are nature-reliant. You rely on nature. You rely on the natural environment to supply you the goods you need because you didn't bring things with you. It is very arrogant of us, from my perspective, and again, not trying to, although claiming it to be arrogant is kind of insulting. I'm not trying to insult anybody. If you're listening and you call it self-reliance and you're focusing on it from a self-reliance perspective, more power to you. From my humble perspective, it feels arrogant to claim that we are self-reliant when we depend on nature. So it doesn't really work for me, but if that's your reason, that's another philosophy of people who 
practice bushcraft. They want to depend on their own wits. They want to depend on a simple kit system or a simple tool system or whatever it may be and their own skills. And that's a valid concern. That's a valid philosophy. As much as I don't agree with it, it's still valid. It's just because I don't agree with doing that and that's not why I do things doesn't mean that that's not why you can't do things. You've got to figure out your own philosophies. You've got to figure out your own perspectives. Don't just listen to this podcast and think that this is the only way to do things. There's more than one way to skin a fox. There's more than one way to skin a cat. There's more than one way to tap dance, regardless of what tap dance instructors tell you. Coming from a guy that never learned to tap dance. But anyways, when it comes down to it, there's a lot of philosophies out there of why we do these things. For me, and this is going to be a very short podcast, probably less than half an hour because uh, it is 11 o'clock where I am right now. I am trying to stay quiet enough not to wake up the other people who are with me right now. We're working very hard on this project and uh, I just don't want to, <laughs> I got to get up in like six hours, give or take. I might get a good sleep. We'll see. Um, but for my philosophy, what is my philosophy regarding why I do this. I work in bushcraft. I am practicing bushcraft in one form or another every single day. I may not be camping every single day, but I'm practicing bushcraft. I'm working with my knife. I'm working with wood. I'm working with fiber. I am practicing my harvesting techniques for food. I'm practicing my harvesting techniques for materials, for utilitarian purposes, working birch bark, splitting spruce roots, mixing different kinds of pitches and gums into glues and epoxies for different tasks. All that, all the time, every day. Like, it is not bold of me to say that I practice bushcraft on a daily basis, on a regular, thorough, much of the day. This is my livelihood. For a lot of us, it's just a hobby and there's nothing wrong with that. It is totally okay if this is just a hobby to you. You don't have to be a bushcraft instructor. You don't have to be the bushcraft guy on YouTube or the bushcraft girl on TV. Not all of us have to be experts. Not all of us have to be masters of the craft. We can just enjoy it for the enjoyment. And that's another reason. Maybe you just enjoy doing these things. Maybe you enjoy all the way of bushcraft. But for me, it's a business. It's a livelihood. It's a way of life. It's a way of living. It's a way of what I do every day. It's part of my mental health. It's part of my actual livelihood, how I get paid. I teach people. I teach bushcraft. And so why do I do this on a regular, thorough, daily basis? Why do I put myself where I'm getting blisters on top of calluses and I'm getting micro cuts on my fingertips from pulling on spruce root all day long, trying to get it sewn nice and tight against the birch bark? Why am I burning myself trying to get fires taken care of to do certain tasks? Why am I putting blisters on my feet, walking over rough terrain that nobody actually needs to walk on? When we have perfect trails in most places, people go camping. I'm the one that's walking through all the rough terrain, trying to harvest things in rough out of the reach places. Why am I putting my body through all this? I have <laughs> a lot of people 
who meet me at some point or other hear me talk about tendon pockets, which is the term I heard growing up for them. If you look at the inside of your wrist, like the, the, the inside portion of your wrist, the outside is the back of your hand meeting your forearm. The inside of your wrist is where your palm meets your forearm. If you look at that, look at that right now with an open hand and now squeeze a fist as tight as you can and you see a divot right beside your arteries. And that's a tendon pocket. That's where the tendons have contracted and retracted and pulled things in nice and tight. And therefore the skin drops down because there's not as much ligament in that spot. On my left hand, when I squeeze as tight as I can, it's about the size of maybe a nickel. Yeah, give or take a nickel. When I look at my right hand, I squeeze. That tendon pocket is the size of my entire thumb. My entire thumb, not just my thumb pad, not just my thumbnail. My entire thumb fits inside that tendon pocket. And that's because of years and years and years of use of blacksmithing, swinging a hammer into hot steel on an anvil, chopping wood with one hand to carve, but mostly using a crooked knife, a wagikamon or a mokataga, to the point that when I finish often working all season, all summer on a canoe build, my hands are in such a bad state. My left hand, my right hand, sorry, my dominant hand is in such a rough state that I have to physically force my fingers open with my other hand. They, they stay in a perpetual crooked knife position. The tendons are so overused and the muscles are so exhausted. They can't easily, like even now I'm trying to open my hand and my fingers can get to like a 90 degree bend on their own. And that's year round. My hand, my right hand is not open willingly pass like a 90 degree finger direction whereas my other hand can open nice and straight like perfectly straight from from wrist to fingertip is a straight angle whereas my right hand it's a 90 and my thumb sticks out in a crooked knife position <laughs> it's i've mangled my hands i'm 33 years old and my entire arm and my back and my legs are not built like the average person. I'm not saying I'm jacked. I'm not saying I look like Hulk Hogan or some muscle bound Adonis. I have just certain physique that is just from daily use of my body to get tasks done in the field. Similar things you'll see on farmers, similar things you'll see on uh, wildland firefighters, similar things you'll see on people who work in the field with hand tools on a regular basis. Certain days when I use a chainsaw for more than half an hour because of all the damage I've sustained in my right arm, my hand will shake for 20 minutes after. Just my right hand will shake because of the amount of vibrations from the chainsaw. It agitates all of those tendons and nerves and everything. And my hand will just shake like, and I don't mean just like little shivers. My entire arm is shaking <laughs> okay. like jello, like it, it, it's not normal. And that's because of the amount of pain I've put my body into. So why do I do this? Why, why am I doing this to myself? And I think that's what the next like 10, 20 minutes is going to be about is why do I put my body through this stuff for something that frankly is not a well-paying job. If you're thinking you're going to become a well-paid survival expert, yada, 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 that doesn't really exist. That's why a lot of bushcraft instructors and survival instructors branch out. They do other things. They'll teach 
youth groups or they'll teach at a college or they'll teach, they try to find that niche where they can make a living or they'll design tools. Uh, a lot of guys that are friends of mine, they've designed some of the greatest camping equipment I've ever taken in the woods with Mikhail McCurrieth, who designed the Emberlet stove and the fire ant stove and his strike light, uh, his fire steels. I think they're called the Ember Strikes and the Sprongs, which are one of my favorite, like going back to the whole, like why carry, why not just bring a spoon with you? He makes these really cool knife and spoon sets that when you detach them from each other and turn them around, they become a pair of tongs. It is the most brilliant thing I've ever seen. And I don't know why it doesn't get more appreciation from the world around me because they are the greatest idea I've ever seen. I love them. And then like Joe Flowers, who designs knives and machetes. Um, a lot of people, myself, I've designed uh, two, I've helped design one knife and designed on my own another knife for Topps Knives. The Fieldcraft knife, the B.O.B. knife, also as the Brothers of Bushcraft knife, uh, where me and Mikhail and Joe, and I believe it was John Campbell, uh, worked on that knife for about two weeks designing and basically debating and arguing with each other until it looked perfect. And the dragonfly knife now known as the D fly 4.5 knife, uh, from tops knives. Those are designs I've worked on because, Hey, it's going to bring me some extra income. Why not? I can't, I'm not going to argue that. And I like knives. I carry a knife. I've got a knife on my hip and a knife in my pocket as we speak. I'm pretty sure you all know I like knives. Anyways, almost anyone that's in this business has to branch out or diversify their, their portfolio. If you want to think of it that way, for me, it's been going deeper into traditional Anishinaabeg living skills or life ways and diving into that deeper and blending my archeological background with my ethnobotanical background with my indigenous heritage. That has been part of me diversifying to help make me stand out as a survival instructor and bushcraft instructor to get more clientele. Frankly, that's one of the main reasons I started doing that. It's not, I came out wrong. That's not why I did it. And that's part of my philosophy. And that's what I'm going to get into in a minute, but it's one of the reasons I really started developing courses around it. So the indigenous food systems workshops and stuff like that. That's why I started doing that was because I was like, okay, Hey, this is something I know a lot of. This is something I've studied and worked on for many, many years. I've been growing corn at my home and growing traditional foods at my home for almost a decade now. And before that I grew other gardens and I've worked on sustainable agriculture and studied sustainable agriculture from an indigenous perspective for well over 13, almost as long as Canadian bushcraft has been around, if not longer. Yeah. 13, 14 years at least. And so that was a way for me to be like, okay, Hey, I never thought about this, but Canadian bushcraft can diversify into that. And we're going to teach those things as well. Anishinaabeg sugar bush, life on the uh, Anishinaabeg trap line, all these workshops that we ran prior to the COVID and hopefully starting up again soon was because I realized I can diversify and make this a niche that no one else that is around me, any other bushcraft school in Ontario, survival school in Ontario really touches on. But why do I do this to myself? Why do I sleep on gravel with a wool blanket <laughs> under a cabin awning or a cabin roof with barely any rain protection? Why do I put my body through excruciating pain and discomfort for, for days, if not weeks, if not months and months and months? I thought COVID would make my life less busy. 
And then I realized I'm the problem. It's not that people keep coming to me and saying, hey, I need this, hey, I need that. It's me saying I am needing to do something. And so I built the quarter acre homestead during COVID-19 while teaching online and doing teachings elsewhere and doing this and this and this. I don't know how to take a break. <laughs> I really don't. I get people are always like, where do you want to go on vacation? I'm like, I have no idea wherever they're going to hire me to do some work. Like that's, that's my vacation is I go and work somewhere else. <laughs> that's my vacations. That's as close as I get to vacation. I've never had a desire to just go on vacation. I've always desired to go and work somewhere and do something. That's just how I am. I can't just sit at a resort and just sip on a drink by a pool. It is the most dullest, boringest thing I could do to myself. I'd rather go and work in the same country that that resort would be at. I'd rather go work with local indigenous people and see how they live and work with them and do as much as I can to help them out. That's just who I am. So why do I do this to myself? I do it to myself because it matters to me. Bushcraft is one interpretation of my people's heritage. And growing up, there wasn't many people that I could find doing this stuff that were indigenous. There was a lot of non-native survival instructors. There's a lot of non-native bushcraft instructors. And I'm not giving them any discredit whatsoever. This has nothing to do about non-native people. This is everything to do about indigenous people. When I was first learning bushcraft, I was learning because I wanted to get the hell out of Dodge. I didn't want to go to university or college. I didn't want to get a nine to five job. I didn't want to go and work at an oil field or become a welder or any of those other job options that exist. I considered myself a misanthrope. I hated people. I, I love persons, but I don't like people as a society, as a, as a group, it's very challenging for me to like that um, because of the amount of horrible and horrendous things that people do. As, on an individual level, I like persons. I like that person and this person and that person. And so by the time I was like 15, 16, I basically made a decision like, I'm not going to university. I'm not going to college. I'm not going to go into the trades. I am frankly going to learn as much as I can and disappear into the wilderness and never come back. Pretty much a Christopher McCandless story, even though I don't support what Christopher McCandless did. And I do not agree that he should be looked at in any way, shape or form as somebody to look up to. I will say that I had a similar perspective. I had a similar desire. Unlike him, I wanted to learn everything properly. I wanted to learn all the right stuff to do. And so I started taking survival courses by the time I was like 13. And by the time I was, you know, cemented in my head, this is what I'm going to do. I was 15 within two years of taking my first survival course and starting to learn survival training and bushcraft from people and reading. I've been reading bushcraft books since I was like 10 years old. I think I was 11 when I got Morse Kohansky's book and I was like 13 when I got Gino Ferry's book. And I just started collecting like Paul Tarrell's camping and wood, uh, camping and wilderness survival book, that big heavy white book that every person has who studies bushcraft in one form or another essay of survival manual, all that stuff. The same stuff we talked about in the knowledge first podcast last year. I'll start when I was like 11 years old, 10, 11 years old. 
I took my first survival course when I was 13. By the time I was like 15, I had cemented myself, confirmed to myself, like, yeah, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to learn everything I can and just disappear into the wild and never, ever come back. And when I was 18 years old, um, I was doing, you know, half day school. I only had like two or three credits left uh, to in school. And so half the time I was just playing out in the woods, doing things on my own, not going to school because I don't have to that day because I don't have any credits to get that or any classes that day. And sometimes I would go down where my mother was a public school teacher and I would help in her classroom. She would sometimes have kindergarten kids some years or sometimes she was with the first graders, things like that, mostly with kindergarten. But sometimes grade three kids were with her and stuff. And I noticed that none of these kids knew what I knew. And I had met at that point, maybe three indigenous men and women that knew Bush stuff in my whole area. Now, nowadays it's, I'm going to, I want to back this up real quickly. This was me as a teenager in a small first nation community that has only one other First Nation community that's nearby within an hour and a half drive. And then going up to like Manitowage and Marathon area, Pick River, hanging out with Native people in those areas, and then meeting other Natives once in a while through my father or through one of my elders or one of my friends. I didn't have a huge, broad world view yet. And so I want to keep this humble. I want to make sure this is very, very humble. I am not the only indigenous survival instructor. I'm not the only indigenous bushcraft teacher. I'm not the only person building birch bark canoes or any of that stuff. But at the age of 18, in my very narrow spectrum of view, I had not met almost anyone who knew what I knew. And most kids who were indigenous kids did not know a damned thing about the woods at all. And I started putting two and two together at the age of like 18 that, Hey, like if I just take off to the wilderness, like everything I know goes with me. And if I don't come back, it doesn't come back. I know it's really arrogant. It's, it's painful to say that out loud, that that is the reason I decided to become a teacher of bushcraft and started learning more about bushcraft was because I was like, I'm the only one that can preserve this. Trust me. I cringe when I think about that, but that was my reason. That was my justification to stay around. That was my reason to not go off into the wilderness because I felt horrified at the implications that I, I spent all these years learning from everyone. I could everything I could about the woods. And now I'm just going to take off. And if I die from a bear attack or I drown in a river when I try to cross it or something, it's like, this is going to sound very arrogant again. It'd be like the library of Alexandria burning down. That's how I looked at it at that age. And I was like, okay, now what I'm going to do is I'm going to learn everything I possibly can. Every nuance of wilderness living skills, whether it be emergency survival training long-term living bushcraft on the land, anything from anybody. I will, I will meet every person I can and learn everything I can from them 
and I'm going to pass that on to every person I can possibly make listen to me. That was my reason. That's what started me on this path. That's what started me into becoming a teacher of bushcraft. That's why I this arrogant, <laughs> cocky belief that I was somehow the last bastion of hope for <laughs> indigenous life ways. Looking back at it, it is the most cringy thing to say and believe at that t- at that age. Since then, I've met dozens, if not hundreds, of indigenous people who are bringing and revitalizing our material cultures to the forefront from birch bark canoe but there are so many amazing birch bark canoe builders now like frankly you think the 90s and early 2000s there was maybe three people in all of ontario that knew how to build a birch bark canoe in any degree three maybe four in quebec there was a lot more in michigan there was a few in minnesota and wisconsin there's a few more some were up in somewhere in the east coast in nova scotia and uh, unamagi in general Mi'kmaq territory, but not that many anywhere, really. There was like maybe in tops 50 people around the whole world living at that time. William Commanda, Pinnock Smith, Chuck Commanda, um, Mary Commanda, I believe as well, was still alive at that time. Um, and then you go like Ferdy Good, Tom Byers, like these amazing birch bark canoe builders. And that was it like 30, maybe 40, maybe, maybe 50. Nowadays, hundreds. Hundreds of people have learned how to work on a birch bark canoe. Have they all built birch bark canoes? No, they've all worked on a birch bark canoe though. They understand the parts. They understand the components. They understand the the nuances of bark peeling. They understand the nuance of root splitting. They understand the minute details of making good spruce gum glue hundreds now ranging from old people who are in their 80s all the way down to teenagers and some kids there's an amazing program like my friend kyla judge and a few other Potawatomi people on georgian bay in wasoxing and shawanaga first nations who built a birch bark canoe with kevin finney like two years ago maybe three now now all those people have worked on a birch bark canoe. So, so trust me, I understand that it's, it was extremely arrogant at the age of 18 to think I was the last bastion of hope for bushcraft in the indigenous communities of our material cultures. And that was part of the beauty is as soon as I started meeting these people, like within two years of that decision of learn deciding like, I'm going to learn everything. I'm going to become the last bastion. I'm going to become the pyramid, not the pyramid, the, the library of Alexandria. I'm going to become the next in my head, Morse Kohansky for indigenous people. I started meeting people who knew more than me within two years. And it was so exhilarating. It was so amazing meeting people like Ferdy Good, Kevin Finney, Nick Dillingham, uh trying to think of everyone i've met oh my god there's so many daisy costas man so many people uh terry denny luke denny his son hunter denny his other son jerome basque john francis the the people of the only were the mi'kmaq people that i've met the pinock smith who i met in high school and was one of the people that motivated me to learn this stuff and his cousin chuck commanda stephen hunter like these amazing people, these amazing people who know 
everything that I need to learn. And that started when I was 18 years old. Within the age of 19, I started meeting indigenous people who knew this stuff. And my world opened up. And that ego got knocked right out of the way. And I was like, okay, I'm still going to try to become that person that can carry as much knowledge as possible to help the future. Because I was young. It's like, I'm the next generation that can carry this knowledge. I'm going to learn as much as I can from these amazing people. All of these amazing people that I've had in my life for 13 years plus now. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible to me. And now, why I do this? Why do I suffer? Why do I beat my body to a pulp trying to get a birch bark canoe built and a wigwam up on the same weekend and doing all these things that I do because I just, pardon my language, I fucking love it. It's not just because I do it because of money. It's not because I do it because it has to get done. It's not doing it because I feel, I just feel a responsibility to preserve this culture. I don't want to preserve this culture. I'm revitalizing this culture and I'm doing it with people who are doing amazing jobs of it on their own. My friend, my friend Hunter's Cascanet and their partner, BZ Gray, who run a Nijmanadok, a two spirit hide, a hide tanning camp every year, teaching Nishnabek people who are Nijmanadok, two spirit people, how to tan hides the old way. That's fucking amazing absolutely amazing meeting young native men and women who are building birch bark canoes learning how to build birch bark canoes learning how to make cradle boards learning how to sugar the old way without steel evaporators without cast iron cauldrons learning how to do it with clay pots and wooden sugaring troughs that is absolutely my bag that is absolutely my obsession whether it's growing corn or growing traditional foods of any kind or ricing or harvesting maple sugar or acorn food processing, everything, everything bushcraft that is in any way, shape, or form tied into the indigenous people of the land anywhere in the world. And remember, everyone is indigenous to somewhere. And I fucking love it absolutely positively truly love it the last couple of days i've been working very hard in the field and it's backbreaking labor and it is exhausting long days very little sleep a lot of traveling a lot of backbreaking labor a lot of heartbreaking moments to try and get what i got to get done done and I heard someone say to me today, I don't know how you do it. And it dawned on me, it's because I love it. I absolutely love it. I live, breathe, think, sleep, bushcraft all the time. It's in my head. And yeah, I'm thinking about other things too. I'm thinking about Magic the Gathering because I'm a freaking nerd. I'm thinking about Marvel Cinematic Universe because I'm a freaking nerd. I'm thinking about Star Wars because I'm a freaking nerd. I'm thinking about food because I'm a fat guy that loves to make food and eat food and play with food and explore food in different ways. But it all, for me, ties back to bushcraft in one way or another. Everything in my life, everything in my life ties back to bushcraft. It is 
what I live for. It is what I'm made for. It's what I, it's what I truly feel is my personality. And growing up, I wasn't, I was that kid that had like struggles trying to fit in and having a hard time trying to, you know, feel accepted. And I was told by a few people over the years, you know, like you have this like one track mind and personality. That's all you do. That's all you think. I was like this one thing. And it's like kind of annoying that that's all we hear you talk about. That's all we hear you doing. That's all we see you doing. There's not a lot going on in there, Caleb. Yeah. And I don't care. Because I fucking love it. It's everything to me. If I could live just like I wanted to when I was a teenager, right now at this age, 33 years old, 20 years after I first had the thought in my head of like just move into the wilderness and never come back, pull a full My Side of the Mountain or Brian's Return from Gary Paulson's Hatchet series, whatever it may be, it comes to mind all the time. Like it's part of my retirement plan part of my retirement when I finally, because very few bushcraft instructors ever actually retire. But if I do decide to retire, you'll know, because there will be no more podcasts. There will be no more Facebook live or Instagram live sessions. There won't be any more Patreon. There won't be any more anything because I'll just be gone. <laughs> I'll leave, I'll leave all of Canadian bushcraft to Ryan and Radic and Christina and all of our awesome staff at Canadian bushcraft to manage on their own. I will, my retirement will be me grabbing a canoe, grabbing two or three packs of gear and food and disappearing into the wilderness and never coming back. That is my retirement plan. So if you don't want that, keep taking classes from me so I can keep having a justification to stay around. <laughs> it's my best, my best sales pitch I got folks. Speaking of that, uh, the hunter's journey begins very soon. Register. We had the ad at the beginning of the episode, but I want to mention again, go to www.thehuntersjourney.com to learn more about how to hunt with more of your heart, how to hunt big game, small game, migratory game bird, all types of animals in all types of ways of hunting from a sustainable stewardship perspective with the, with the passion and soul that we need in this world of hunting. And it's an amazing course that Chris Gilmore and I have been working around the clock on for months and months and months and months now. I'm so excited for this to happen. I, I'm like chomping at the bit because, again, I don't take breaks. I've had people ask me if I get burned out. I wonder once in a while if I'm burned out. I just, no, I'm just tired. <laughs> I just get sleepy and I'll sleep for a day or two and then I get right back to it. And I do mean like I'll sleep for a day or two, not like I'll sleep for a bunch of hours and just lounge in bed. No, I sleep for like 36 hours. And then I just get up and I go right back to it. And I've been like this for 15 years of my life. That is, that is life to me. That is living to me. I love it so much. I cannot wait until tomorrow morning when I can get up, put my... $400 Schnee's hiking boots that I were gift from my staff a couple years back, back on my feet and go right back out into the bush and do another day of hard backbreaking soul crushing work, working in the bush. 
Why do we do this? Regardless of your philosophies, regardless of your path, regardless of your perspective, the reason why we all do this is because we freaking love it. And there's nothing wrong with that. I want to thank all of you for what, for paying attention to the podcast tonight. I want to thank you all for joining me on this soulful little exploration. You all mean a lot to me. I appreciate every single one of you. I especially appreciate our patrons on Patreon. People like Arbuckle, Adam, and Niall Gallagher. Neil. Niall or Neil, I'm so sorry. I, I, I don't know your spelling very well. So if you want to message me on Patreon to give me a good phonetic spelling of, of how to pronounce your name, I will announce your name again. Pronounce your name again later. People like these three and Renee Nolting, all, all these amazing people on our Patreon, you're the reason that we can keep doing this. You're the reason we can continue to make this podcast happen. Make sure that we can do it because of the right equipment. Do it because we have the right... Uh, the right gear and software set up to edit all this stuff and put this all together for you. The the finances to help keep the electricity on and the internet running so that I can make these podcasts and put them out to the world. The fact that we can keep doing this, the fact that sushi is being fed so that she doesn't try to eat me in my sleep, the fact that the ducks and geese at the quarter acre homes that are being fed so they don't try to raise up and revolt against me. It's all because of you amazing patrons over at Patreon. Thank you so, so much from the bottom of my heart. Thank you to all of you. And to everyone else and everyone listening at all, thank you for tuning in. Hope to see you again very soon. And hopefully get back to having weekly podcasts. See you next time. Take care.